For me, the highest quality that I look for is self-awareness. In this example, you don't have the requisite on paper experience. I want you to own that. Because if I know that if you can own that, that means you can also own getting over that. And where I stay away is when people then, they're actually trying to fake it. They're actually trying to say like they own all this stuff. It's like, oh, come on. 90% of successful people, success is attributed to right time, right place. Me, mm -hmm. myself included, right? And so really that 10%, I'm trying to figure out is it 10% or is it a bit more? And that's really the number one thing I look for. This is Reveal, the Revenue Intelligence Podcast, here to help go-to-market leaders do one thing, stop guessing. If you're ready to unlock reality and reach your full potential, this podcast is for you. I'm Danny Wasserman. And I'm Karina Owens, coming to you from the Gong Studios. Ladies and gents of Reveal, before we get into today's episode, I gotta ask you something. So my last name is Wasserman, and a lot of times we talk to leaders in the business and B2B space about SaaS. Wasserman, SaaS, Herman? Do we think that works? I don't know. Well, let me know what you think, because maybe that's going to be my new podcast moniker, the SaaS Herman. Anywho, enough about me. Let's talk about why today's episode is so special. It's the month of May, and if you're keeping track at home, that is American, Asian, and Pacific Islander Heritage Month, AAPI. To properly celebrate this month, we're bringing to you someone who can only be described as sensational, Oliver J. And where do I even begin with Oliver? How can I even begin? Because the amount of wisdom in this episode is giving me heart palpitations. I'm having an existential crisis. For context, Oliver, currently an advisor and leadership coach to C-suite executives from companies like Grab, Figma, and Notion. You can check him out at oliverjcoaching.com. But let's tell you how he arrived at this point with his background. Well, here we go. Last leading Asana as their CRO, and before that, being a global leader of sales at Dropbox with his first job out of UPenn at Morgan Stanley with a stopover in Cambridge at Harvard to go to business school. You definitely want to take this dude's advice. Yes, he led Asana, which is that leading work management platform. Ready for this? From 20 million, modestly, to over half a billion dollars, credited by pushing the company's international expansion to nearly 10 countries. And along the way, yes, revenue contribution from their international markets when Oliver was at the helm, it grew to 40% of the company, all again, while trying to take the company public. Oliver has a wealth of experience, but it didn't come easily. He had to overcome some serious battles that we're going to learn about in today's episode. He really harps on the need to find sponsors who can advocate for you during those senior level conversations when you're not in the room. And also, if you're leaders out there, he talks about your obligation, your duty, your responsibility of nurturing young talent and taking the responsibility upon yourself to sponsor others. As we all know, we're standing on the shoulders of giants. Throughout, he's going to sprinkle in how he's been authentic and empathetic to lead to his success, largely originating from his superpower of synthesizing complex situations into actual results. Enough from me. I've spoken too much. Let's go straight to El Patron, the Wizard of Oz. Yes, our guest for today, Oliver J. Ladies and gents of The Reveal, Universe, Listenership, Posse, 
we have something extra special. It is the month of May. And for those keeping track where that falls in months of celebration, it is AAPI, American, Asian, and Pacific Islander Heritage Month. We have found someone who is truly sensational to both hear from and celebrate as part of this historic month. We have none other than Oliver J. And to go through and account for every single one of his achievements and accomplishments, well, that would take the entire 25 minutes, but I'll give you the TLDR cliff notes of this stud. Going by OJ to his friends. Yes, Oliver J. cut his teeth starting at Morgan Stanley, an associate there, to then make what's going to be the underpinning of this week's episode, Transitions. Transitioned into B2B SaaS sales, first starting out doing sales at Dropbox. Yeah, I think we've all heard of that, where he had an absolutely meteoric rise to eventually absorb some of their international markets to then go on and become the CRO of none other than Asana, a six-year run, which saw OJ take that organization from 20 million to over half a billion dollars, making international 40% of the company's revenue. Another transition going from being more domestic to global. We're going to talk about that. And then, of course, along the way, given that it is May, we want to hear about your transitions into business as an Asian American, Oliver. So with that said, I am so pumped to have OJ in the Reveal House. Oliver, what's going on, man? Hey, how's it going, Danny? Really glad to be here. It's honestly, I don't know where to start because I think I probably skipped some other major achievements. You are a guest lecturer at Harvard Business School. You got your MBA there. We also know that you're a coach. You have your own business now at OliverJLeadership.com. Check it out. Advising C-suite executives and none other than Figma and Grab, the super app from Asia. Oh my God, and you're on the board. So like, where do we start? Why don't we talk about maybe that first transition chronologically? So you leave, if it's Warden, if it's HBS, you're at Morgan Stanley, and talk about that experience and how that helps transition you into B2B SaaS. Sure, so absolutely right. I mean, probably, I would say biggest, one of the biggest lessons learned is nothing makes sense going when you look forward, but all makes sense going backwards. So I started away career in banking, specifically in equity research, where I was like looking at tech stocks. And I mean, I love that analytical rigor of that job. I could model anything, like the most complex businesses, I can bring it down into a spreadsheet and then pump out a stock price, right? Really enjoyed that. But what I really loved learning was actually the company strategies and such. And so I actually transitioned before into operations, I transitioned to venture capital. And I worked at NEA for a couple of years. Mm-hmm. And in venture capital, what I realized was I had the most fun when I was working with the entrepreneurs. Of course, I had to do sourcing. I had to do that due diligence. And frankly, when venture investors get involved with companies, like those are generally not the best companies. <laughs> but I still really enjoyed working with them because I was just like, wow, there's so much energy. And there's really, these are teams that are trying to create value and impact in this world. And so I decided to leave venture and go into operations, although I had no experience, really that was why I said, Hey, let me, let me give it a shot. And most of the, and he had some amazing general partners then and partners. And most people told me, look, if you want to move in, you should either, you got to learn how to build product or sell product. Those are the two key things. Every other function around, right? From marketing, generating leads to the chef, right? Cooking for Silicon Valley, just startup folks, everyone's supporting. And so I could have gone either way. There was an alternate universe where I would have been a PM, but at the first operating gig, I was able to get someone to take a bet on me was in sales. 
and then the rest was history. So there is something I want to unpack, which is you and your career have achieved an amount of success that we all aspire to, envy, if you will, to be a CRO of a company like Asana, but then also have such a great run at Dropbox. You talked about this superpower of coming out of your academic chapters and being able to look at numbers and run incredibly complex models. There's a barrier to entry in that skill, Oliver, that not all of us will have a chance to invest in academically. We don't have the resources or the time or that door has been closed. Sure. But it seems to have served you so well, your magical superpower of synthesis to take abstract things and synthesize them into saying, here's the valuation of the company. I have to think that that served you well in justifying, hey, give me a crack at operations. So my long-winded recount of what I just heard, it leads me to my question. Do you have to have that superpower to be successful in operations and sales? The superpower being the, the power to synthesize abstract yeah. situations. Do you have to? I, I have to think about, that's a very strong statement. I, don't, but I think it's very helpful. It's very helpful. You're totally right. And But I actually go back to one of the things you said, like how did I actually get into it? I, I was yeah. a philosophy, politics, economics major, but very heavy on philosophy. That, okay. didn't, that did not translate directly to Wall Street either. But what okay. philosophy is really good at is giving you a lot of abstract concepts and you have to make sense of it. Um, and then going from finance into operations was a similar thing. And so it was really helpful. That skill set that I had developed since college or maybe even earlier was really helpful because when I ended up at Dropbox, Dropbox was, I think, the first of its kind in many ways. Today, we call it product-led growth. Back then, that term did not exist. We were like, what are we? Are we B2C? Are we B2B? Are we SaaS? Are we enterprise? Or, like, it's such a new model of a company that goes bottoms up, wins the individual over, and then eventually all the way to the enterprise. And so, yeah, I learned a lot. We had to learn a lot along the way. It was an abstract concept that yeah. I was able to really think about from first principles, like what we should do. And we made a lot of mistakes. Certainly by the time I got to Asana, I was able to, a lot of those concepts were able to come together and, and I was cool. able to feel a lot more confident about how to drive a product-led growth business. When we compare the two statements, fake it till you make it, is this really more celebratory, hey, we're all honestly probably over our skis, but let's celebrate that versus, oh my God, I have such imposter syndrome. Fundamentally, those two different statements refer to the same probably sensation and I'm wondering, because we're so focused on all of the miraculous transitions that you've made, OJ, I'm wondering, were there times leaving philosophy and going into banking or times leaving banking and going into B2B SaaS operations where you felt both, I'm thinking until I make it. And also, holy shit, I have such imposter syndrome. Talk to us about that. <laughs> Thank That's a great, great question. I... You're, you're totally right. I, like for most of my career, I've had this chip on my shoulder that, that I don't belong. Because I was, I went to Penn where there were people who studied Wharton right, and in finance, right? Whereas I was learning, reading about Immanuel Kant and like morals of human nature and whatever. And going to Wall Street, I was like, whoa, I don't belong. And, and I did think it's about, I did have to fake it till you make it, right? Faking it means working even harder than everybody else to catch up. There was certainly some catch up to do, 
right? Same thing on, on moving into operations. I didn't, especially when I moved into the sales world, like I don't, I didn't come from Salesforce, right? I actually did, when I left business school, I decided to do actually like a whole bag and actually be an individual contributor for, before Dropbox. So I, I understand that how hard it is, but I wasn't good at it. And so I did think that I did have and struggle with imposter syndrome, especially when there was a time at Dropbox when there was a role that I really wanted. And I was told that, hey, OJ, you've done, and at this point I've done a lot. I've generated hundreds of millions of revenue. And they said, oh, you don't have enough executive presence for this senior role. You know, I struggle with that. So, but by the time I went to Asana and at where I really, really was able to thrive over time, I realized, I realized this, you're not really, I don't, I don't think faking until you make it is, is going to work because eventually that sense of self-doubt does creep in. And I think that's why if people have perceived me to not exude sufficient executive presence, whatever that means, which we can talk about later, I think that's probably why, because there was that seed of self-doubt. Right. Yeah. And yes, it served me really well, but it was also my limitation. But over time, at Dropbox, what I realized is you don't have to fake it until you make it because most people have no idea what they're doing. Most people are making it up as they go. Yeah. And again, they eventually they write books, right? And they talk about, right? Like I, I'm lying on this podcast now talking about what we did as if I'm some genius. No, like nobody really knows what they're doing. Everyone's making it up as they go. And it levels the playing field. And with that, I had more confidence to actually thrive. There's so many different ways I want to take the conversation right now based on that last soundbite. The thing that seems most compelling to me right now. So someone told you at one point, you don't have enough executive experience. And there's a paradox there. You're like, okay, whatever that means, sure. That's your assessment of my pedigree. But you're dinging me for something that I haven't been given a shot at. So who... Who ultimately gives you that shot? Who takes a chance on you? And I know certainly when we have folks who are applying for jobs and they say, hey, I want to go for this next level in my track as a, let's call it a sales IC. I want to go from being a commercial rep to an enterprise rep. And they say, hey, like, I'm great. Here's everything I've done. And they get dinged in spite of their performance by a recruiter who says, we love what you've done, but we're not going to take a chance on you because you've never been an enterprise rep. And I'm wondering when you summarize the ass backwards nature of everyone being like, oh, no one knows actually what they're doing and they're all faking until they make it. What is that tipping point or what is that quality that even you look for when you start hiring people in an executive capacity who are at one point in your shoes who didn't have enough sufficient time in the saddle as an executive? Can you give us some examples of those qualities that supersede tenure, that feel more meritocratic as opposed to this being a byproduct of purely how many years have you done a role in a certain capacity? Yeah, I really, really believe in interviewing and assessing for competency yeah. and potential for competency over experience. In fact, I try not to even look at someone's LinkedIn profile. At one point we used physical resumes, right? I would yeah. actually just turn it up. I would like, I would not look at it for at least the first five minutes because I didn't want any okay. biases to be on the other side. So I know it's hard for me. The highest quality that I look for is self-awareness, hmm. right? In fact, the more aware that, okay, that you, in this example, you don't have the requisite on paper experience. I want you to own that. 
Because if I know that if you can own that, that means you can also own getting over that. And where I stay away is when people then, they're actually trying to fake it. They're actually trying to say like they own all this stuff. It's like, oh, come on. 90% of successful people, success is attributed to right time, right place. Me, mm -hmm. myself included. Right. And so really that 10%, I'm trying to figure out, is it 10% or is it a bit more? And that's really the number one thing I look for. The story I tell you is, I'll give you two. One example at Asana, this woman, her name's Allison, phenomenal talent. I met her and she joined Asana as a support rep, like user operations. So like answering your support tickets. Mm -hmm. But she had demonstrated to me that she was like learning how to code on her own. She was asking great questions about business, about management, about whatever. And I had seen enough talent to know that she has the core competencies to become great in a role like growth, a role like driving a self-serve business. She just hasn't done it before. So I put her in that role, right? It was like a multi-step role to get to that kind of final job for her. And she did great. And she, she was responsible for hundreds of millions of dollars. And by the time I left Asana, it was hundreds of millions of dollars. When I first met her, she was, she had just like transitioned from user operations. Okay. Right? And I heard her on this call because she's technical now. She was like basically explaining to the head of security at Nike why Asana was secure. And I was like, okay, bingo. Like. She can do anything. Yeah. And she ended up driving hundreds of millions of dollars for the company. My chief of staff at Asana used to be my HR business partner at Asana, but she asked great questions, right? She showed an interest in learning sales. She had done sales ops before. And so I'm going to come on over and be chief of staff and then we'll figure some out after then couple of years later, she like through that job, she learned what the job meant, what leader sales leadership was like. And then she like made it her own. And now she was our interim head of Europe. And now she's the head of Asia. And she used to be my HRBP just three years ago. So, and there are, these are phenomenal talent, right? So it just tells you that any, right, if they have the right mindset and mentality, they can, they can do it. Ever heard of the Pareto principle? Yes, it's that classic 80-20 rule. Well, sales is no exception to the Pareto rule, but in this case, we're talking about success in the craft of sales being largely 80% mental, 20% skill. Your attitude will determine your altitude, as we've said with that old adage. And it comes to this episode, and when it comes to being a successful salesperson, it really does boil down to your mindset, having that positive growth mindset. Carol Dweck lovers out there, shout out to Carol. Well, growth mindset will get you far in sales, no matter your experience level. And according to a recent article from LinkedIn, having a positive growth mindset means acknowledging your own weaknesses, not strengths, but weaknesses, and working on them to eventually become strengths. Being curious as well to learn open and embracing the feedback and failures. And lastly, persistent. If mindset isn't covered, then success in sales will always be hindered and limited. So remember that the next time you hop on a call, enter that office or meet up with a customer, exercise that growth mindset. Well, back to you, Oliver. So of the 20,000 some odd unique monthly listeners that Reveal has, we've got ICs who are on the cusp. They're on the precipice of being discovered. And we've also got 
CROs like yourself who are listening. How do you advise both groups to not judge a book by its cover? So if you're the CRO making that hire, obviously you talked about competencies. Any other advice you'd offer for that higher echelon group of listeners? How do you avoid the tendency to succumb to bias, judging a book by its cover? And then the corollary to that, if you are that special talent that is waiting to be discovered, realized, awoken, how can you as that talent, that chief of staff, that support sort of ticket person who then went on at Asana, how can you jockey, how can you expose your magical gifts and superpowers so that leaders who can change the trajectory of your life, they can unleash that? Let's talk about those two populations. So let's, I'll start with the second population. You're a star IC or young manager. You have a lot yeah. of potential. You feel it. You want a chance. I think you have to get yourself out there. You have to find yourself sponsors. Mm -hmm. I am a big believer in that, right? Not just a mentor that you ask questions here and there, but someone to actually sponsor you. Could be someone internally. It could be a, another senior person outside your function if you're not getting it directly from your manager. Like a lot of managers are not great sponsors, which I'll talk about in a second. Okay. Right? They help drive revenue, drive performance, but they don't really sponsor. So a sponsor is someone who is willing to advocate for you without your even asking for them to do that. Mm. And certainly when you're not in the room. I learned this from Carla Harris. I'm probably butchering how she defined it, but it's really like when the important decisions are being had by the senior people, someone is talking about you. And so I think that's really important. And that was really beneficial for me. The reason I got these sponsors was because for what we said earlier, I need to catch up on my revenue, whether it's self-serve or enterprise sales. I need to catch up on my knowledge. So I went out and got it. At Dropbox, Kim Scott was the person who managed me for a little bit and she was my sponsor. But when she left, I didn't really have one. And so I went out, right? I went out of the company and developed a roster of people who I think ended up being my huge allies, right? Outside, they were like the CRO of, of HubSpot. Kelly Wright at Gong, right, was one. So I think it helps a lot to find sponsors because the world, the Silicon Valley is so small, right? Whether it's Silicon Valley or elsewhere, like every tech ecosystem I've been in is so small. Right. Like everyone's constantly asking who are the good people. And, yeah. and so that, that would be my advice for the rising star. And then for CROs and for managers, I, I mean, the, the other, I would say the other side, the, the, the other side of the coin is it's your responsibility to be sponsoring people because hmm. I know 99% of people on this podcast who are deemed successful didn't get there on their own merit they likely had someone who sponsored them. Ideally, it was also their manager. That may not always be the case, but they got help along the way. Someone pulled them up, someone opened a, a unique opportunity to them. Someone took a bet on them. And I think it's really, I think it's your responsibility as a leader. Otherwise, otherwise you're just a manager. You're just part of like a factory, right? You're part of, you're like, you're part of like assembly line. The output is either a product or revenue. But really, if you really want to be a leader, you need to learn to nurture talent. And, and that's how you really build great companies, I think, anyways. 
love the advice. It is your responsibility to pay it forward because we've all stood on the shoulders of giants to achieve what we've now maybe at times come to take for granted. Going back to your point, the population of rising aspirational precocious ICs, the theoretical of get yourself a sponsor. That makes total sense. And that is a not a burden, a responsibility. The onus is on the ICs. Talk to us about whether it was Kelly, whether it was Kim. Did you so boldly and explicitly go to Kim and Kelly and say, would you sponsor me? Was that an organic thing? Especially if you're going outside of the organization, given how insular, at times even incestuous, the world of tech is. Can you demystify that process for folks who are earlier in their career? Because if I'm a BDR and I'm an AE, it may feel truly inaccessible to shoot someone like Kelly Wright an email and say, would you sponsor me? Or if in fact, that's as simple as it is, can you tell us that? Yeah, look, I've, when I first took on an operational gig, and especially when I, when I was in charge of sales at Drop, for Dropbox business early on, I probably had 75, 80, like advisor, mentorship kind of conversation. Yeah. Cause I just, okay. wanted, I just wanted to, I was like, okay, I want to learn from the best. I just want to learn from the best. So I know what I knew. And then I over time, create my own playbook. Of that 75, I probably give it five. Okay. Right. Because you're, you, you let you, you, what you're trying to do is you're trying to get, you have to get lucky at some point that you will find someone with more experience who has a heart to also sponsor and advocate for young, promising talent. Right. This is why I wish there were more. This is why I wish there were more people like that. And I really hope there will be. But you do need to meet a lot of people. And how you do it, I, from the, what worked for me wasn't, hey, can you sponsor me? I'll put your name on my work uniform. It really is just truly and genuinely trying to tap into their brain and their learnings. Yeah. And I think if you show that level of humility and also sharpness, in how you synthesize, right, what you're learning, the the sponsors get a lot out of it too. Potential your potential sponsors can get a lot out of it too, because mm-hmm. I, what I find is the act of advising and mentoring actually helps codify a lot of things I've learned mm. that is now in my intuition. But now someone's asking me, "Oh, how did you think about hiring? How did you think about this and that?" The act of speaking and talking about it actually helps me structure what I, what is instinct. And so you'll find that. And I think I was lucky because after talking to so many people, I just happened to find a few people that had the right, that had the right chemistry. Right. And, and it was easy to then stay in touch. And I would say that was the next thing, which is like follow up. So I, 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 I talked to a lot of people. I think only 5% of folks actually circle back to me. Mm-hmm. After they've like primed me for information about how to how do you build the PLG company that goes into the enterprise, all that, and we talk for like an hour, only five percent people come back and say, "Hey, this I tried this. This is what it did. It worked." And obviously, that's not going to be an effective way to build a relationship, right? Totally. When you talk about this organic synthesis, that was the word you used, Oliver. The synthesis of talking with these sponsors to begin to verbally flex that new muscle. And it's funny because coming full circle, we talked about the start of your career. You have this mathematical superpower to synthesize things, maybe 
in isolation. You could look at a balance sheet, you could read through financials, you were doing equity research and you could synthesize things, but not as collaboratively, I'm guessing. And it's funny to see the continuity in being able to flex that mathematical synthesis with then interpersonal synthesis and that being part and parcel or fundamental to your success. Is that a fair summary or am I, that, am I extrapolating yeah, I, too much? I, I think that was a huge new learning for me. Like it's easy to hide behind numbers, right? Mm -hmm. But behind numbers are actual processes and behind processes are actually people who need to come together, yeah. align and collaborate. They okay. get you that. And once you appreciate what really you have to kind of double click, triple click into any model, any assumption, it's, yeah, it all comes down to people and relationships. And on that front, I think I'm really blessed that at Dropbox and Asana, I worked with phenomenal people and we just collaborated really well to co-create a lot of, a lot of magic, frankly. Love it. Well, I'm sensitive to how much time we've taken of yours. Two more questions. The theme of sort of transitions being what's sort of connecting all this together. I want to talk about, again, transitions, but also judging books by their cover. And given that we are in AAPI month, talk to us a little bit about transitioning into this world that is heavily dominated by folks that don't look like you, OJ, that are not of Asian descent. How are you transitioning in? Have you, in your time in this world, felt victim to being judged by your cover? And if so, first off, sincere apologies if that's even the right reaction to have as a white cis male. So I'm curious, how did you deal with it? How did you overcome it? And any advice for our AAPI listeners on Reveal? I definitely, I'll say a couple of things. The first is I resonate with what many people might be struggling with on this front, even before taking a job. Like the, my biggest question I had for myself before I moved into sales leadership was like, was, can I do it? Because I, there was, there was no one really senior I could look up to. In fact, when I, by the time I, I have yet to meet, and I really want to, I have yet to meet a, another Asian public company, software, VP sales, CRO person. I haven't, I've yet to meet, I'm, I'm looking for them. Let me know uh, if you come across, I have, I mean, I'm sure I'm not the only one, but yeah. I haven't. And so. It was that imposter syndrome. I I totally felt it because you're like, wow, hey, there's a lot of Asian people in this world. How am I? Especially like I was a immigrant. How like how am I gonna do this, right? And uh, and so I I think it's it's certainly certainly a struggle, and it doesn't help when like I was. I remember there were a couple of times, two two conferences I went to for like sales leaders, like round tables and whatnot. Of course, I'm the only Asian guy there, Asian person, a guy or a girl. And two times people after like, and I always like just ask lots of questions to like my fellow peers because I want to learn like what they're doing, like what are their tactics. Yeah. They ask me like, they assume that I was the head of sales ops, right? Mm -hmm. It's like, it just like slipped out. And I was like, no, no, I'm, I'm the chief revenue officer, right? So. It is there for sure. I think the, the way what I've learned to, is the more I actually leaned into my, myself, 
I wouldn't say my Asian-ness, but just who I am. So this is a really common, not just for Asians, for anyone who's underrepresented. I think the more you lean into who you are, the more effective you are as a leader. So instead of trying to be the, the what movies maybe even right, depict how sales leaders should be like or revenue leaders should be like, rah-rahing the team and, you know, like coffees for losers and or closers and all that. Like, yeah, that's just not my style, right? My style is more intellectual, is more strategic. And so I think if you ask people on my team, their experience and those who liked working on my team, I think they have a different experience with me as a leader because I bring them into a lot more strategic conversations. Like in my own hands, I talk about long-term company strategy. I talk about competitive differentiation. I talk about, I like, I break down things as if I'm an analyst for the team. I explain to people quantitatively why, why we want to build uh, annual deals over monthly deals. What's the benefit of it, right? Even though your ACV is lower, I explain and once, because it, it clicks for people, right? But I leaned into that side of me. And I think people got a different experience. I also lean into the Asian side of me. I didn't hide yeah. from that. I like. I think probably one of my more memorable moments at Asana was when there was a lot of these Asian hate crimes like really spiked, and a lot of Asians at work didn't feel safe, even just going to work. And so I wrote up a like a five page document on what it's like to be Asian in the US, at least my personal experience. And I just sent it to the entire company and like within Asana and like the infrastructure team eventually said that like they had to look into it because they thought it was that there was an outage because so many people interacted with that content, wow. right? And so I just, I'm who I am. I talked about my tiger mom all the time, you know? And I think that's my biggest learning here is yeah. you're gonna have imposter syndrome, everybody does. Right. You probably have it even more if you're underrepresented, but the more you lean into who you are, the more effective you're going to be. So it's just like irony, right? It's like the more you feel like you don't belong, the more you need to realize that you totally belong. And the way you do that is just to look yourself in the mirror and, and, and love yourself. It's a beautiful way to wrap up this episode is what can feel really counterintuitive is actually the antidote to that angst or anxiety that you feel in. The only thing remotely close that I can personally share, which pales in comparison to being a revenue leader of Asian descent, I'm a white cis male, but like you, I'm a philosophy major. And I find myself in the world advising sellers and can I fake it as the prototypical Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, Alec Baldwin persona? Sure, but that isn't authentically who I am. Also as a former restaurateur where I want to serve and to be more, I would say, verbose or flowery in how I speak to index more towards logic as opposed to business, finance, economics, which I had to make up for along the way. But when I stopped resisting my natural tendencies, when I actually just let them go as this enablement teacher, which comes with its own stigma, I saw so much more success because I wasn't fighting these gifts that I have. And I'm so appreciative, Oliver, of your parting words. Stop fighting it. Stop resisting the authentic self that you are. And when you let that side of you flourish, 
then the success will follow in suit. I mean, it's a really profound way to close out the episode. So OJ, can't thank you enough for that dismount. If you've listened to the podcast, you will know that in spite of that being a beautiful way to put a bow on everything, we do ask every single one of our guests the same question. And if you've heard an episode, you know what's coming. But OJ, to close this out, if you could describe sales in one word, what would it be? Problem solving. I know that's two, but I'm going to put a dash. All right, let's hyphenate. Tell us more about that. Sales is, I think sales is the ultimate problem solving job, right? Or or let's say good sales, right? There's a lot of people who don't solve, but ultimately, if you look at the people who really excel in sales in all kinds of environments, they are able to truly lead with empathy, truly understand customer, really understand the customer's problem sometimes before a customer even understands their own problem, right? And then help the customer solve it. Hopefully, a lot of those times, your product is what will solve your customer's problems, but sometimes not, right? And a great problem solver, they also know when to walk away and when to tell a customer, hey, this, I'll help you decipher your problem. I don't think I have the best product for it, right? Mm-hmm. But this is your problem. And by because you're able to do that, because you're able to solve someone's problem or identify it, you develop that trust. And that trust could happen, will come back, right? Even if that, that deal doesn't close, trust me, like it will, you have to believe in the positive karma in this world, right? That person who like, that person will tell someone else, oh, this, this, this person was really, really awesome. And that person might leave, join another company, they'll come back to you. So it yeah. all comes to, back down to solving problems. Cool. Well, OJ, after an illustrious career and what I have to think will be an equally vibrant, thriving next chapter with OliverJLeadership.com, thank you for being so generous with your candor and your vulnerability and, of course, your wisdom. To our listeners out there, enjoy May and AAPI Heritage Month. This is Danny Wasserman signing off. We'll see you next week on Reveal. Have a good one. See you. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Reveal. If you want more resources on how you can help create high-performing sales teams, head on over to gong.io. And if you like what you heard, go ahead, give us that five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you may listen. 